We've arrived, at last, at the great vortex looming on the horizon, the late 1990s, where no sacred genre or text is immune from being stripped for parts and reassembled into something shiny, something new, with inevitably varied results. Whatever fusion you're in the mood for, there's a film for that. Shakespeare on the beach, Shakespeare on the savannah, Shakespeare in high school, Jane Austen in high school, vampires in high school, the list goes on, and it's only natural that noir would find itself pitched into the genre blender alongside everything else. So it goes. In the year of our Lord 1998, five decades removed from the heyday of film noir that our private detective trades in his suit for a bathrobe. What forces high on the distinctly 90s strain of hangouts brought to you by Kevin Smith and Richard Linklater delivered to us the freshest take on the private eye in decades, that Caucasian guzzling, credence-loving man of the year, the dude. The Big Lebowski, along with tonight's other entry, Zero Effect, aren't recreating the past unless you count the short walk back to the first Bush presidency. Instead, they are the truest modernizations of the genre we've seen to date, pulling classic detective stories into the waning years of the millennium. It's a jolt, having spent so long immersed in fairly standard noir dress and feel, but it's a vital shakeup, a reminder to storytellers of the need for restlessness. Noir and neo-noir had grown stale, familiar, and that is certainly not a charge that can be leveled at tonight's films. After all, for years, our detective has felt like a man out of time, but now... Right from the outset, we're greeted with a new mantra, courtesy of Sam Elliott. Sometimes, there's a man. Well, he's the man for his time and place. Welcome to the end of the 20th century. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend. Tristan Johnson. It was almost two Tristans there. Uh, almost. We just had two Jakes. We're about to have two Lebowskis. But, uh, yeah, that would have been good if I'd, I should have done that in the intro for the last one. But uh, <laughs> yeah, well. uh, And tonight, we've got the much-anticipated Coen Brothers classic, The Big Lebowski, on our agenda, but before we wade into those waters, let's give our other entry from 1998 a little room to breathe. We're talking about the Sherlock update, Zero Effect. Two shots, down she goes, execution style. Guess what the victim's name is. Uh, let me guess. No, I don't mean really guess. No way you can actually guess. Clarissa. Being blackmailed, Mr. Arlo. How desperate? Scale of one to ten. Bordering on manic. <laughs> I need the matter resolved. Take me to the scene of the crime. Released in 1998, uh, directed by Jake Kasdan. That would be the son of Lawrence Kasdan, who, of course, wrote you know, Star Wars and uh, uh, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So body. You know, he's he's got a, a pedigree, um, and that would explain why Jake Kasdan. Um, is like 20 some years old when he's directing this movie uh it does help to have a, a famous dad i guess um and it stars bill pullman ben stiller kim dickens and ryan o'neill uh we open up with arlo uh that'd be ben stiller uh assistant to the great detective daryl zero bill pullman uh taking a case from a blackmailed millionaire gregory stark that would be ryan o'neill uh, Zero follows the clues to Gloria, played by Kim Dickens, and EMT uh, strikes up a relationship with her. We eventually learn that Stark has raped Gloria's mother, and then when she blackmailed him, he had her murdered. Gloria then was raised by her mother's hitman and began blackmailing Stark herself when her father grew ill. Uh, that's more or less the, the gist of it. Most of those are reveals that don't come until fairly late in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, but you knew what you were getting into with us. We were going to be dissecting this anyway. Uh, Fred, did you have any experience with this movie? 
Uh, no, it, entirely new to me. Um, it was just something that came up with my research. I was kind of looking into the genre and putting together our list of, uh, which at this point is up to over 4,000 titles of noir oh and noir-related movies. And it just seemed very appropriate to pair with The Big Lebowski, which I, I at the time, before I'd watched it, now having watched it, I still think that's true. But um but no, I'd, it wasn't even on my radar until I started doing that research. Yeah, brand new for me too. Um, and I think it is a really spot on pairing. Um, we're both, uh, last, last year we were talking about two films set in 1948. This year we've got two films released in 1998. Uh, they have their differences for sure, but I, I, I think it's pretty clear to see a shift in neo-noir in the medium um, and how... And I mean, just the a sign of the times where where we're at in the these waning years of the of the millennium. Yes, yeah, so last uh, two took us on like the continued the retro noir strand. Then this really showed how noir had continued to evolve, and at this point, had kind of absorbed some of that Sundance indie energy into it. I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, I I think that's really present here in in Zero Effect. Coen Brothers will get to, but they're always I mean, they're doing so their own thing. But... They're they're their own brand entirely. Um, but um, but Zero Effect is is tapping hard into that kind of that '90s slacker energy that um, that I I mean I guess I attribute to Linklater just kind of kicking off that that energy, um, but um, but it's it's more pervasive than that by this point in the decade. No, that totally totally tracks for me too. I was just like, yeah, this is a '90s this '90s movie. Yeah, um, and and it's uh, loosely based on on Sherlock Holmes' classic scandal in Bohemia, which is notable for being the the Sherlock story that features Irene Adler. Uh, there's uh, they're uh, actually later on, uh, early early two thousands. They um, got production started on a TV series of Zero Effect. Uh, it was never ordered, but Zero would have been played by Alan Cumming. Right, it was a um, prequel so that you could see Arlo, the Ben Stiller character, join up with him and start working for him, and then they would, it would have been all their cases together, leading up to this movie, which I kind of find a little endearing that. Dick Kazan was so protective of this world and these characters that he was ripping with that he was like, people want to see, like we have to honor the canon and go back and keep the movie as officially part of the canon and not just like, just start fresh. And so he was like, no, this is this is a prequel series too. And I was like, I'm not sure people were like specifically asking for a prequel show. And I get it, like Zero Effect as a TV show, I'm, I get it. Uh, it'd be a fun thing to watch, but I wouldn't be like, it needs to be the prequel. We have to keep the canon intact. Right. Um, that said, I would I would kill to watch what Alan Cumming would do with this. Uh, or continuity, rather, yeah. Oh, totally, um, yeah. Because he, I feel like he has the, I feel like he has the kind of energy naturally that Bill Pullman is is straining for here. Um, like I, 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 I'm and I'm curious to dig into to Pullman's. I like Pullman. Yeah, I like here. Pullman in general. Um, I love I, Pullman. He's he's such he's. He's a naturally um, just a guy you would want to hang out with. He's, uh, yeah, it's just interesting. Like he's a very inviting presence, but he is a little weird. I don't know. I thought this was. I think coming would have hit a different note that also would have worked in this role. I think they're both just like slightly. You know, they're they're toned up and down a little bit. Um, but I'm sorry. I know. I I I enjoyed this. Like it's not. I didn't love this movie, but it was fun. I enjoyed hanging out with these characters and just kind of zipping along with this, this story and it was just idiosyncratic enough to, to really keep me interested. You, you get the, the sense that he, uh, that Kasdan really, he really does care about, about Zero and he really mm -hmm. wants him to, he wants to make a detective that leaves a mark. It's, yeah. I mean, not, not uncommon, not unlike Ryan Johnson and Benoit Blanc. Um, sure. you, um, you, he, he wants, he wants to put this character into the ether and have him like take on a life of his own. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I felt like, obviously he's, he's pulling on Sherlock for inspiration for their dynamic, uh, and, uh, and for the tickiness of, of, uh, Bill Pullman's character, his idiosyncrasies, um, 
uh, but he really wants him to to just kind of thrive on his own and and enter the zeitgeist. It doesn't quite happen like that, we know, but yeah, uh, and this sort of the interesting thing to me is that if you compare this to the um, uh, Gaddis and uh, what's his name, Sherlock. Oh like, yeah, Moffat and uh, uh, whatever. However, you feel about yeah. that that particular adaptation, you know, like it it lands really well on the Sherlock Watson relationship and really sells it. And I think here, in part because of the Adler of it all, but also because like Arlo's on his way out, that it I don't know, like Filler feels underserved and their relationship doesn't hit me in the way that the best like Sherlock Watson relationships that or like looking at house right as another reskinning of sherlock like that hits clearer and better for me well um uh, and and i think if i'm if memory serves the sure benedict cumberbatch's sherlock I, I, the scandal in belgravia i believe they called it was that was was the start of the second season so yeah, they'd already had a chance to develop some dynamic and i think that's what hurts it here is there's too much that like they don't just let them get into a rhythm um this this is already the movie's already trying to disrupt that rhythm too early on and yeah it what it does is it's constantly hitting you with reminders of the past cases mm-hmm. so it's telling you about it versus showing you them in action um which i would have i would have loved to see a bit more of um it, yeah uh, you know, we're 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 being told to believe that they're this this duo and that that Zero is the the brilliant mind and and I I feel like the the film just doesn't run with that long enough, right? And we also don't get to see them on screen together that much, right? Like a lot of it is Arlo talking to somebody else about Zero or Arlo running around and doing his errands when we even get to see Arlo. Plus, well, I, not... I like the I like the opening. Like, I think I think in the beginning it sets it up well. Like, they're building right. him up. He's like, the, it's a it's a really solid lead in. He's but do we ever get that investment to, in their relationship to be like, yes, I feel it when they are. You know, it's again, it's just, it's so much more interested in in, in Irene Adler. And I'm curious. I, I'm just not a huge like Sherlock head, so I don't know. I know that Irene Adler as romantic interest is a more recent development. To the classic Sherlock, or like a, a recontextualization of the Sherlock canon, right? Like in the original story, he just respects her. He's just like she is one of the great rivals, but it's not romantic in nature, and that that's been more of a, as I understand it, more of a recent thing. And, I, and I'm curious where the zero effect lands in that continuum of transforming that relationship into a romantic one and not yeah, just and an I, inter- a challenge. And I'm I'm by no means an expert on on that, but it is it's it 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 feels like it's self-sabotaging in in doing that in pinning so much on on taking this character who uh it, I don't know, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with Sherlock being asexual or being um not I I, I don't know, trying to force like romance is an inevitable thing that he will have to you will have to go through with this with with the woman. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't like that as a trajectory for for any story, particularly. But and it's not it's not sold to me here, which is I think what holds me back the most. That's fair. I think thematically, it makes sense. I'm not sure that it helps the story. And again, because of the fact that we're coming in at sort of the end of the story here because it is the end of that like working relationship and he's not going to you know all that he's not going to see her it just feels like we're coming to the last sentence in a long book and it's like okay but what about the rest of the book why am i only reading the last sentence but thematically it makes sense to me to be like okay we're going to do the story where he finally you know he does finally break his own rules right that he is like objectivity and yeah no you're right that's a, that... so i get it but i'm not sure that it is the choice that best serves an initial foray into the world of daryl zero right um and then there's the the there's like where we're obviously talking about this in relation to to sherlock and and holmes and i mean we got into this when we when we talked about um about the elephant god 
too. Like that, that's clearly a more Sherlock, a more Holmesian inspired uh, duo or a, a detective setup versus noir. And I, and, and the fact that we're folk, we're so focused on this and like in relation to those Sherlock dynamics, um, like I'm trying to position it quite the same with noir and with noir detectives. I mean, I think and, it feels, I personally, I do think that this is like, in that post-Tarantino neo-noir space, right? Like, it is sort of the furthest if Tarantino is, like, on the one hand pulling from noir and on the other hand pulling from that more, not slack, I don't know, like that, that, that comedy mode, that kind of ironic, detached comedy mode, like, that flavor is in here enough for me to be like, yes, this feels like the farthest reaches of that moment of the neo-noir space. But I agree that it's not like them. And also I think the the more sordid reimagining of the original tale gives it that as well. But it is more about the deduction and less about the, the world and just sort of being in, in the space like you would see in a really classic noir. I think that the space of the film is an interesting thing too, because, because it is, I mean, it is obviously very distinctly nineties and it feels like they are, these are, it feels like these characters are inhabiting what is otherwise the real world, as mm. opposed to, as we'll get to big Lebowski, which is very much a meticulously crafted Coen brothers, Roger Deakins world. Um, or as opposed to classic noir, which often is a, it feels very um, insulated within itself, playing by its own set of rules. Mm -hmm. You're not. Uh, but what I guess the the through line, because you mentioned Tarantino, and I can see I can see where you get from Reservoir Dogs, uh, Pulp Fiction to right. It's been Xerox a few times, that. but and 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 even Tarantino, I see that lineage pass through. Um, obviously a a hundred different sources but on the more noir side passed through godard and like the idea mm, of these sure. these cool looking characters hanging about and having conversations um and they exist in the in they exist in morla and tarantino's uh and, and godard too they exist in the real world or some semblance of it um but they they're they're there to look to look cool and mm -hmm. they're tapping into that that no that strain that comes even right back from from breathless and and belmondo and looking at bogart it's all i mean you can follow that that line uh, so yeah. no but i think you're right that it is it is it, it's it feels just a little bit less about the people and a little bit more about the plot here and that's sort of what's holding it back and also is why it's like it makes perfect sense why this would be a tv show as an ongoing procedural and you can't really say that about a lot of noir. Even, you know, we, we we just recorded the previous episode and so I was talking about Easy Rollins and how that could be a TV show. But that would be a TV show like, it would, it would be like a season-long mystery. And the mystery wouldn't really be the point. Like we talked about, the point is just getting to hang out with the characters. And the zero effect is, is a little bit more about like the mystery and that's the thrust of it. And then there's some trappings on the side. Yeah. Were you, um, well, I, w I was very distracted by the cinematography in here. And I, I don't know if you had the same. Uh, was it distracted? Or... It is a little like flat TV, like. There's one moment where they're just like arbitrarily kind of tracking from like in the restaurant, tra like tracking low and like they move up, the camera follows along the floor sort of, and it moves up toward them, but it doesn't seem to, it, it doesn't seem to serve any any real purpose. It doesn't punctuate anything. It doesn't. It, it's it's just there. And and it was, I I was kind of annoyed by the flourishes like that during it. But in in a way, maybe those are the like those are its strongest ties to like B movie noir, where there's just um where sometimes there's just uh some fun things happening with the camera that don't really serve much real purpose. Um, <laughs> they're just people trying something a bit more inventive because because they can and they're shooting it on the cheap and and why not make it a little more distinct looking um so 
maybe it's not such a, a bad thing, but I was I was like semi annoyed throughout watching it. Like, why are they doing this? It doesn't it's not serving any purpose. Sure. I can see that. Yeah, it wasn't I don't know. It it does feel very like first movie, you know. Or, actually, or... I, I think I feel like I'm not super well versed in his, but I actually kinda like the Jumanji movie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, that was did. fun. I, I like it's, it's, it's pretty solid. He he clearly has some sound directorial instinct. He can make a, a, a an entertaining movie. No, I think he's he's really hit a stride as sort of like a Hollywood studio blockbuster guy. Like I, I yeah, he, he makes fun movies. So I I enjoy the two bunch of movies as well. Uh, anything else you want to kind of cover as we before we oh, get to the, get the, more the, the main event up, but... we'll, we'll wrap them all up together but yeah um but of course uh we are um we're excited to finally get to talk about a classic of the late 90s that would be the coen brothers the big Lebowski. from the academy award-winning writer director duo the coen brothers what is this obviously you're not a golfer Jeff Bridges stars as the dude. Cocktail. Careful, man. There's a beverage here. Ah! Are you employing Mr. Lebowski? I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Released in 1998 and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, uh, The Big Lebowski uh, definitely has a, a storied place in many uh, people of our age <laughs> uh, uh, cinematic history, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, stars Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, uh, Julian Moore, with uh, with support from Sam Elliott, Philip Seymour Hoffman, David Huddleston, Peter Stormare, David Thewlis, Tara Reid, Ben Gazzara, Flea, and of course, John Turturro. Uh, the plot, as you all probably know, in a classic case of mistaken identity, our hero, um, Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski, is mistaken for that other Jeffrey Lebowski, the millionaire, and... A quest to replace his beloved rug soon draws him into the alleged kidnapping of trophy wife Bunny. Unsurprisingly, things grow more complicated from there. Hilarity ensues. Uh, Fred, what's your personal experience with this movie? Uh, I've watched it before. Um, I think it was either high school or college that I first watched it. It's definitely the Coens that I've watched the most, but I'm also a big I think we talked about this before. I'm not a big rewatcher since like I don't know middle school, and so I had not watched this movie in ten years probably, and it was a real real treat to get to revisit it. And having watched even so much more noir between now and then, I have a a, a new vantage into what it was doing. So it was, it was I was really glad to revisit it. How about you, Tristan? I'm also the I'm a terrible rewatcher. I don't rewatch anything. I I. Almost never do, and yet this is like the exception to that rule. I've seen this movie a lot of times. Um, I probably next to Clue probably seen this more than any other movie mm-hmm. <laughs> ever. And I didn't even watch it till I was in college. I was till I was a freshman in college. So it's kind of like tracked as I've like learned more and more about cinema over the last fifteen to seventeen years. Um, I I have. Uh, I've I've just uh, like every now and then revisited Big Lebowski, and I feel like it does it does deepen the more certainly the more you learn about classic noir, but classic Hollywood too. Uh, mm-hmm. There's this this movie is is absolutely dense, um, and and that's not atypical for a Coen Brothers outing. Um, are are you a, a Coen Brothers fan in general, Fred? Yes, um, they're not like a, a favorite of mine, but. You know, I'm always excited for a new one, and it's it's always at least going to be interesting, if not great. So, um, so yeah, I, I guess that counts. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, I'd agree with that, and there there's just no one there's no one that can tap into that same energy. No, no one does like regional films quite like mm-hmm. like the Coen mm-hmm. brothers do. They can really inhabit a space and time and and bring it to life on screen, all all filtered through their own bizarreness. But uh, but you know, that's the the pleasure Actually, of it I'm, all. 
I hadn't thought about that before, but you're right. like each of their movies is so specific about period and and setting that they're is, so is good at it. See that often. Uh, like I, I mean, I I, I say this because I'm I've I've been immersing myself in him right now, but it's very it's very Pynchon esque. Um, in in that ability to like wear this uh to wear the cloak of another uh of, of another space and just inhabit it and inhabit these characters and in order to make it feel or maybe in order to make it feel authentic it's got to be a little weird and idiosyncratic otherwise uh otherwise it'd be too easy to probably scrutinize the the finer details of it but it's it it it, it just you are you are here in early '90s LA, um, what a, I mean, what a choice to set it like six years before the right. But I think it just contributes to how out of time this movie feels. It is mm-hmm. both. It is both distinctly '90s. No one's going to question that, and yet it, it it's very anachronistic. It could be, it could be um, anywhere, anytime. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it somehow walks that line. I don't know how it does it, uh, but. Uh, maybe having Roger Deakins as your cinematographer helps with that. As, as you referenced the um, bookending narration and Sam Elliott, like I think also kind of gives it a little bit of a unmoored from reality vibe that helps to kind of put it in different space. Yeah, I guess first, before we dive into all of the, the characters, the, the other the other context, this is an original script from the Coens, um, but no surprise that that there's heavy inspiration from Raymond Chandler here. Uh, which they've acknowledged, and and the big sleep, the parallels, especially at the beginning, mm-hmm. are are considerable. You've got um, you you've got our protagonist being called in to the mansion of uh, of of a wealthy man in a wheelchair. <laughs> yes, a rich old man in a wheelchair with, I guess, subbing a a flirtatious daughter out for a trophy wife, um, a a butler. <laughs> Um, uh, who, uh, God, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just so delightful in this movie. It really um, wish we'd got more Hoffman in Coen Brothers. Oh, I know. Um, it's it just what a rich combination. Philip Seymour Hoffman, late '90s, is is doing such between this and and Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Talented Mr. Ripley. He is doing such good work, uh, mm-hmm. and in the margins of a lot of great films. The, there's a lot of um, real elements that are woven in here from the the Coen brothers uh, knew based the dude on someone named Jeffrey Dowd, who was a, a white Russian drinking producer and activist that they'd known. Um, they drew elements from Walter from a Vietnam vet and private investigator who actually did um, did recover a stolen car that a high schooler had had hijacked and and they found his his homework in, under the seat. So there are, there are elements of reality that of course have found their way into this movie shot by Roger Deakins, who, who really, I think is, gives some of his very best work, even though it's not his most, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty flashy, I guess, but it doesn't feel like his most prestige, but uh, I think the, the cinematography does a, a lot to create the very distinct world and space that we're operating within here. Well, we'll start with the man himself, the dude, the dooster. Deuteruno. You're not into the whole brevity thing. I feel like I know this whole movie by heart or something, but... I think that was the quote that I first... Like, somebody said that to me, and I was like, I don't know what that is. And they're like, you need to watch The Big Lebowski. Ha! Jeff Bridges just inhabits this role in in a way that um, that puts him instantly among the the classic noir detectives uh, as far as as far as how iconic he is how how he just kind of stumbles through this um the this um bizarro la uh, uh from one one scenario to the other utterly befuddled and uh and and he just exists passing along meeting this uh this parade of characters um it, i'm it's as good of a performance as Bogart in The Big Sleep or Elliot Gould in in Long Goodbye. It's uh, it's just an iconic role. Yeah, I mean, you, you know this a little bit later, but something that this time watching it, I was very aware of is just how much he is in one movie and other characters are in other movies. And each scene he kind of, and that's where so much of the humor comes from, right? 
And what got me this time was the um, the scene when the Big Lebowski calls him in and offers him the job, and they're at the they're in front of the fireplace, and the Big Lebowski is having this very serious scene, and he's staring into the fire, and he's concerned. And meanwhile, the dude's just like, oh, uh huh, and then he's like lighting up the butt, you know, he's just it's in his so, own movie. I didn't even like so funny. I didn't pick that apart even when I put that in the notes, but like the more I, I suppose we could probably dissect that quite a bit. Yeah. That he's like the, the, the big Lebowski is like having, having his like an Orson Welles moment almost that you just imagine him as, as like, like commanding this room with a booming voice and the roaring fireplace and everything. And, and yeah. And what? the music is like really like dramatic and, but in Jeff Bridges, just like, uh huh, man. Yeah, uh huh. And he's like, it's hilarious. That's all it is. I, it's it's almost like, it it's like uh, we start this off with the the narration by Sam Elliott, and it's grounding it not not in a noir, but almost in in a in a western or oh, in yeah. a classic in a classic American tale in mm-hmm. in something that is distinctly, if nothing else, American. And 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 then we cycle through. Uh, a range of genres. We have um, we have the western, of course. We have the Busby Berkeley musical Dream number. Yeah. We, <laughs> we have pornography. Pick it apart down to like like David Thewlis's like little cameo where he's John Waters basically sitting mm. in and cackling in <laughs> in Maud Lebowski's uh, art studio. Like every, I, I it feels like like every little. Uh, bit of Americana that can be thrown in is is here all while the dude is living his noir story and then we get to the end and the mystery resolves and they go back to bowling and Sam Elliott closes it off again with his narration and that's that particular story is over yeah I mean this is and we've talked about this a fair bit already but it is like a key part of the weird LA noir that that starts with um, Harper and then really blossoms with Altman's Long Goodbye. And then you've got this, and then you've got, um, I feel like there's also going back and revisiting this now after having seen Inherent Vice and having seen um, Under the Silver Lake. I'm like, so much of this is then filtered and quoted into those two movies. Like it, it is such an interesting strand, and you talk about here like that, and these are movies that can only be in LA, right? Like it is a, such a weird, vacuous place of people arriving with dreams that calls to these oddballs. Well, you you assembled the um, the season largely, Fred, and um, and I don't know how. I don't know how deliberate in the construction we're going to get to this when we wrap things up at the end, but the, it just feels like this is this, this particular strain, what we're pulling on here is so core to, to the, the arc of this entire season um, that we have, we, we have our detective, we have the city of Los Angeles. We have this, uh, th- this bizarre playground for him to unpack and, and, shuffled through or be shuffled through uh i don't know that's that like that's the pairing the detective and the city it is it's I, so I mean, vital it's, they're, they're they need each other yeah i think it's it, it's probably uh, i put this season together and so this is when it comes to noir the private detective is my favorite part of noir and my favorite part of the prep detective is the one where it is like the mystery is kind of there, but as we've as I've said many times, it is the clothesline that you then hang the weird characters and situations you encounter along. And so I, I'm not surprised that maybe subconscious. I mean, I think it is a big part of the genre and the the tropes, but I think also it is something that I respond to. So it's something that I'm putting in a forward position. But I mean, I think it is like you go back to the big sleep, and that is what the big sleep is. It is it is not as like absurd as we've gotten here 50 years down the line and sort of like amplified and feeding back on itself but it is still the same core thing of the detective stumbling from situation to situation and encountering weird people as he tries to unravel a mystery that nobody can actually make sense of yeah uh 
I, uh, I, I don't know. It's so it, it's it's just everything about it's right, and I think I think that it it allows the Coens to weave those other genres in really seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, like that shouldn't work. That should be that should feel too indulgent. Um, but it's it's all kept in just the right dose, and it feels it works because it's L.A. It only works because it's L.A. I don't think right. it would work anywhere else. I mean, it's... to be fair, in the moment, it was kind of considered indulgent, right? Like, as with many Cohen comedies in its time, it was not appreciated. And it's only been with the accumulation of years that that respect for it has grown, right? Like this, I feel like Hell Caesar, we're starting to get the the reappropriation or the re- reconsideration for um you know, uh, uh, burn after reading, like each, each of those movies in this though are so like specific to their era. And then it's not until later that you're like, Oh, okay. I see what we're really doing here. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it's, uh, a really careful balancing act to, to pull all of those, those strands together. And it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of confidence in your premise, mm-hmm. I think. And, and maybe that's where, granted, you know, Coen Brothers, it's like you can't compare Coen Brothers to Jake Kasdan. Like they're, they're coming in, they're, they're coming in, in this case, fresh off a of Best Picture nomination and, and Best Actress win. And like they've got, they've got plenty of cred established by the time Big Lebowski is, is happening. Right. And, um, and so they've got a lot more, not only do they have more ingenuity, they've got more meats. Um, but this, this is a fully, formed world this is not this is not shooting in 1990s la this is shooting in a time and space of their own creation and and it does it works because it's all so cohesive from from the bowling alley to the big lebowski's mansion to um to jackie treehorn's uh beach compound it all jackie treehorn's beach compound that's another one this time around that that i like really resonated with me and and was that like yes this is that weird la like only in la could you go to the pornographer's mansion that is worth a million dollars and is just filled with people hanging out on a beach and this wild like 70s retro futuristic interior and the giant brutalist architecture like this is all only la yeah there's and then jeff bridges is doing like a full Charlie Chaplin, like his physical comedy routine, <laughs> as he's like oh. creeping around the place. I mean, it's just incredible. It's it's what and to go from that to to instantly snapping into Busby Berkeley mode. Um, right. it, it's it, and 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 it just flows. It just it just somehow works. And and I guess this is probably um, again chalk this up to to the. Chinatown or the the Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like every now and then, uh, something is going to come along that's going to have the right alchemy. It's going mm-hmm. to, um, it's going to take those different genre elements and it's going to, it's going to be something bigger that other things are going to try to replicate, but like they're missing the point in trying to replicate it. it. It has a point of view and it's saying something with it. It's not just, in, it's not just using the trappings of the genre. Yeah, and so I think this sort of like also Bridges is technically not a private detective, right? But he's inhabiting that space and that narrative function so well. No one's deputized him, except that sort of the Big Lebowski has given him an assignment. He's given right. him a he's a, given a, him a classic private detective assignment. That is, uh, which one is it that he's he has to go? He goes along to the Jade necklace payoff. Um, there's like there's been two of them. Um, oh, uh, there's been three of them. There's two of them. The the first um, is is it farewell, my lovely, or, um, or, or oh um, yeah. no 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 farewell, my lovely. Sure. Yeah, yeah yeah yes because it's the it's the other retro yeah so farewell, my lovely right like that is part of that's something he gets hired to do in farewell, my lovely so it is like but again it's the dude is not a detective and he is from a different genre but he has been fitted into a detective's role by chance and then is absurdly set off on on this adventure and uh and it i guess um so one thing that that has been true through most of um most of our entries is that the detective has been largely a solo agent um 
and not the case with with zero effect but for 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 the most part the detectives kind of been a, a lone wolf here but in this case um he uh jeff bridges has got uh the dude has walter has john goodman mm-hmm. uh in in that kind of co-pilot seat and um and and you know donnie too let's not forget about donnie uh you're but donnie oh so quotable donnie, you're out of your element but um but but that is a, a change up to what we've seen from a mm-hmm. lot of the classic noir and um and I, I think it 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 doesn't feel like it takes away because at no point do you at no point does your mind ever drift from bridges from from the dude being the center of this movie around which everything else pivots um it's it, it like it's it's his movie um he is the one that's living this noir story uh clearly Walter is is living living from a different genre. Walter is is in a war movie, um, and and he is yeah, bringing he's in Rambo, right? Um, he's ready to fight to every every opportunity. Um, they're all living their own genre. They're all living their own strange LA story at the same time. We're mm-hmm. just following the dudes. But he also did converted <laughs> for his ex wife. It's still, it's still, it's still, uh, <laughs> observed. Damn it. Uh, oh, Shamus Shabbos. Oh. oh, boy. We could, I mean, there's just, I mean, we could just quote, we could just quote lines, right? Like, this is a movie that you could do one of those, like, one, one minute at a time podcasts and just keep digging into it. But, um, not that um, kind of podcast. Um, this is uh, so, this, you want to, this is so minor, but I never realized until until this viewing how utterly fucked up it is that um, that Maud um, that Maud decides that she will conceive a child with a man who shares a name with her father. How how, how strange is that? That's weird. It does. I but that like there's just so much here that it never even occurred to me that that was that was an element. <laughs> I don't know. There there's there's so much to unpack and um and gosh uh i don't know i like i i just love that this movie exists and can be as weird as it possibly can because i don't think enough movies are are confident enough in their weirdness Mm -hmm. um which is partly why i'm so delighted at the at where the the rest of the season's going to go because um because i do you see that embraced more and mm-hmm. uh, and we're definitely going to end on that note too yeah this definitely is the start of like really opening up as you said the the genre blender and it's uh, kind of opens up the next two decades of noir and detective storytelling into into making more interesting choices and playing with the canon more instead of just doing another retro noir and being in the 40s and being like well la huh is there anything in kind of um, bringing these two films, Zero Effect and The Big Lebowski, together that really that stands out to you. Uh, it does feel like a, a big shift that we we see with with these kind of releases from what we've had previously. Yeah, I mean, I think like I think both are playing with the that '90s comedy sensibility. It's just that like. Well, you know, it's just that one is the Coen's doing it with the very specific Coen's voice, and the other is just sort of a more general vibing with that sense of ironic humor. Yeah, um, and 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 you know, um, both. I it, you need you need a lot of films in that kind of vein to just kind of change the change the tide, reset, freshen things up a little bit. Um, and then allow for whatever else is going to come next. Allow for the next evolution. And uh, and I I mean I'm I'm grateful that we have the Big Lebowski's, but it's also good to have um, have more minor entries like like Zero Effect. And you know, for anyone listening, your mileage is going to vary. I think Fred probably liked it a little more than I did, but also you know, see it. It's it's uh, it's I amusing. I regret right? watching it, and it's you know, yeah. charming actors being charming on screen. You like Bill Ben? Do you like Ben Stiller? Do you like Bill Pullman? You will like this movie, pretty right. much. Um, and, um, and 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 you know it does it it does have a certain goofiness about it that um, that is is more specific to 
um, to the character ticks than it is to the the story itself that it's telling. But um, but I think that that kind of uh, lack of self seriousness is it was the antidote to a lot of these more prestige type pictures that were were yes. happening earlier in the '90s. So this is this is a good direction. Things are um, things are moving. Um, things are opening up, and you know they're only going to continue as we uh, as we get into the 2000s. And Agreed. On. So that means, of course, that it is time for what's in the box. Fred, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what is something you watched recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Uh, yeah. So I was actually earlier today editing an episode to go out, and we're we're very off schedule and got it really far ahead and we're going to be releasing episodes we're talking about movies that came out six months ago and so whenever this comes out who knows but anyway something that i watched recently is the uh entire filmography of charlotte wells the director of after sun um and so her two previous shorts one's available on youtube the other's available on her website and then after sun is i think still in theaters here in chicago at least i'm sure it will soon be on de- on demand um but it collectively it is she is a major new talent that is so much about crafting a tone and a headspace and very subjective I- inhabiting the world to the main character i'm not surprised that um barry jenkins was the one who really responded to her short and kind of championed her career and got her set up at a24 and his his company produced her feature and they they stylistically they're doing different things but in terms of that approach to narrative and character it, it feels very much of a piece um so so yeah after sun definitely but also really worth i think watching her her two student films that preceded it after um lapse and blue christmas all all three are fantastic and collectively announce a, a really promising and not even, not even promising just a full stop great talent that i'm excited to see what she does next oh i as of this recording have not seen after sun yet and i really want to and uh things tend to play a little longer in in chicago than they do in mm-hmm. new orleans uh but I think it might still actually be here, so I need to get on that. It's, I've been, I, I've been it's watching a, so much from 2022, I just haven't seen it yet. It is worth doing. I mean, it's not a, it's not a plot movie. It is a character but, headspace movie, but it is I'm great. good with that. Oh, um, well, um, speaking of, of 2022 releases, uh, the I've seen a whole lot over the last few months since we recorded last but the one that i think i i i haven't shaken really since i saw is uh is the banshees of inisharan certainly in contention for my favorite movie of the the year it's um it is a uh wow um i mean it's it's not a it's both hilarious and also a really despairing movie simultaneously and that's a really hard tightrope to walk uh, and it did that for me. Um, and it's just kind of a, I don't know, a, a vibe of pervasive sadness, but also humor that um, that I just, I don't know, I don't see that kind of cocktail done particularly often or well in in movies. Um, and it's so much better. I like it so much more than, uh, than Three Billboards. Um, mm. So I was relieved that Martin McDonough was in kind of I don't know maybe maybe it took him back being in back in back in Ireland. Uh, mm. I don't know that may have may have done it. You know I watched it. I there's a lot of respect about it, which is also my reaction to Tar. I did watch Tar, and that was Tar. I also like respected more than loved. Um, but the Tar kind of like is in your face about its formalist control, and this is not. But it is. It's doing a lot, but I don't know. I may need to watch it again because some people are that I respect and, and love, including you, are really singing its praises. But it it just something did not connect for me on this watch. Uh it doesn't. I mean, I it's this is a movie with with uh, considerable um, swings in tone, um, mm-hmm. at, uh, and often swinging, <laughs> to, hitting two different notes at pretty much the same time, <laughs> and. Uh, and that makes it, I think, probably 
I don't know. It's just something that 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 is going to probably hang differently for a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I respect that. Did you? I'm curious. Did you see it with a crowd, or was it just you, or just me? Okay, it was also just All me. Right. So I was I wasn't sure if like that. Actually, though, it was um, it was one of the more crowded showings I've seen this year. Weirdly, oh no, I mean, that's what I mean. It was like, uh, were you? but like, was there was there oh. a? Oh, was there an, yeah, I would say there was more, more of an audience for this than almost any other, other movie I've watched the, this year. I don't know if it was just when I, when I caught it or what. I wonder if that would help kind of when I, when I saw it, it was, it was just me. So I wonder if that would have helped me Huh. like key into. Oh God, this be watching that alone in a theater is a, would be an overwhelming experience, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, I, you know, I I do, don't know, like I do hope to it, revisit it at some point. Um, having other people laugh at moments that you're like, oh yeah, maybe should I laugh there? Should I not? Right. I don't know. That's It's that's where it... I'm like, because the comedy is so yeah, that's where I'm like, maybe it would help the comedy land to have watched it with more people and to be like, oh yeah, this is <laughs> sad and funny, just like it, the Irish intended. it, it really landed for me. Um, more more so, uh, give or take everything, everywhere, all at once than than anything else I've seen this year. Uh, that those those two in uh, RRR, I think are are holding my. My, my favorites down on the year so far. I think my But top I three still at this got some point more to see. are uh, Crimes of the Future, Decision to Leave, and After Sun. Well, um, I like the first two of those very much, and I clearly still need to see After Sun. Um, uh, but there's still there's still a few more that could probably... But I, I feel like I'm, I'm getting to the point where I've, seen, I've checked a lot off my list already. Uh, Fable, I think Fableman's is my last like big, big one. There's still a lot to watch, but I did just see Fableman's um, all, did it do all it for time, you? all time. Great. Uh, Fableman's has, has some wonderful things about it and it has an all timer of an ending. Um, it's I've heard. the, the, the lead up is not quite as consistent for me. It's, it's a bit up and down, uh, but it has some real magic to it and truly a wonderful, wonderful ending. Well, I can't wait to watch it and we can discuss it in another one of these. Exactly. Uh, well, until then, uh, thanks as always. for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when we'll be investigating just exactly what kind of effect all these years of noir have had on the youth. We'll be looking closer at Brick and the Kid Detective. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a Strange Phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.